a reminder, we had Vacation Bible School the last three days, which went really well. Had about uh, 20 kids here, and everything went went superb. Uh, we have just a tremendous organization for putting all of this together and running it, and it came off very, very well. Also, just a reminder about the trips to the Bible lands, Egypt at, at the end of December, and then Greece and Israel next April. All that information is now up on the website, and you can sign in and and begin to send in your um, your deposits and get that information in. Also, uh, there's something new that we posted on the Dean Bible Ministries website. We need to send out an announcement to everybody that this is there, depending and wait until we settle on what we're going to call it. But as you know, on Friday mornings, I have a an online group of pastors, anywhere from 20 to 30 pastors join in, and we have go through various topical studies and some more technical studies in this area or that area, but since, the, uh, since early May or late April, Ray Mondragon, who's got a science background and is in Albuquerque, has uh, taught for years in the university context there uh, at the University of New Mexico, has taught on creation science, and uh, he has done a tremendous job. But because of his contacts there and because of the proximity of, the, uh, of Albuquerque to Los Alamos and Sandia Labs, he's had a contact with a number of scientists who are creationists, who work for the government, work at these labs, and are not shy or bashful about their a belief in a literal genesis, a literal creation, and they have been involved in building scientific um, models of creation to explain the dynamics of Genesis 1 as well as the dynamics of the Noahic flood. So apart from Ray's discussion, we had a time when he was gone in May to uh, on a couple of trips, and Charlie Clough had four very or three very informative sessions, so we cut those out and we edited them a little bit and posted them. And uh, then there were two lectures by John Baumgartner, who worked at uh, Los Alamos. And one of the interesting things about him, this was back in the 80s, is that when he was first interviewed from his job, if you listen to his second one at the end, he tells his testimony on this. But he was, in, he was interviewed for a job at Los Alamos. And during the middle of the interview, somebody who was sitting in the back raised his hand and said, weren't you the guy who did a seminar on, on, Noah, the, on Noah's flood and geology and Noah's flood in Albuquerque not long ago? And he said yes, and he was thinking, okay, well, that's the end of this job. <laughs> and uh, afterwards, this guy came up to him and said, listen, we've got a, uh, another, uh, another guy on... Uh, staff here who wants to talk to you. And so he went in to visit this guy, and they had about an hour and a half long discussion on geology and the Noahic flood. Before he left Los Alamos, he had a job offer in hand, which was to work on the most elite research team that they had. And as part of the deal was that he would work in the mornings until 1 o'clock for Los Alamos and then in the afternoon, he would have complete access to all of their computer systems to run whatever 
uh, personal projects he wished to run and investigate. And so for about eight or nine years, he used those computers to model his various, uh, various th theories and approaches to the hydrodynamics of the Genesis flood. So there are two sessions that he does on there that are just simply outstanding. And then another uh, scientist who wrote a book that blew most of our minds, some of you may have read it, called Starlight in Time, uh, Dr. Russell Humphreys. And Russ Humphreys gave us a session last week. He's updated his theories on um, that one of the big problems in creation science is how did light from, if we're going to say the universe or the, the earth is 5,000, 6,000, 7,000, 8,000 years old, how in the world did light from galaxies 20 or 30,000 light years away uh, get here so quickly? And so he has worked on this through in various ways. He also spent his career working at Sandia Labs in New Mexico. And after he retired in the mid-90s, then he worked for some time, as did Baumgartner for the Institute for Creation Research. And so they're very well known. And so they have, uh, uh, Baumgartner has a website. I think it's called floodgeology.org. Is that the name of it? Anybody? What? what? Globalflood.org. Yeah, globalflood.org. So you can go there, see a lot of their material. So what I decided to do is this material was so good that it shouldn't be restricted to pastors. None of us are going to teach this because we just don't have the science background to really go into any of, of this kind of detail. So I put it up on our website, on the Dean Bible Ministries website, so that everybody can watch it and see it and be uh, blown away as we are. Now, nobody is saying that their views are the absolute explanation of everything. But based on how we understand a lot of science today, this puts forth a viable scientific explanation based on our understanding of geology for how the scripture is true, understanding a literal creation a literal six 24-hour day creation and understanding uh, the worldwide flood of Noah, that this wasn't some little local river flood that occurred in the mountains of, uh, of Iraq or near the Black Sea, but that this was indeed a global flood that lasted for a year. That always surprises some people when you say that. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights, but then the waters continued to go up for another, what, six months, something like that. And then they, they just a tremendous force of water. You had the uplift of the mountain ranges and many, many other things. And so uh, they've done a, a tremendous job on this. So I encourage you to uh, take the time to, to watch those. So that's up there on the website. We'll be sending out an announcement to people once we decide where to put that. Originally it was put under a line item called Creation Studies as a topical series. Then it got shifted to pastors. But I'm thinking about putting it back under Creation Studies because it's too many people looking, oh, that's for pastors. This is for everybody, okay? It was done for the pastors, but it, everybody... Uh, Everybody can watch it, and you will be just as 
uh, out of the scientific loop as most of the pastors were because most of us don't have that kind of technical science or engineering background. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we will have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture teaches that we are to walk by the Spirit in Galatians 5.16. We are to walk according to the Spirit in Romans chapter 8. But as sinners, we still sin. It breaches, breaks our rapport with God. And so to recover that intimacy, that ongoing fellowship and enjoyment of that fellowship with God, where God the Holy Spirit is working in our lives more dynamically to sanctify us, we need to be restored to that fellowship, that walk by in the light, abiding in Christ. And so we take time always for silent prayer. If necessary, confess sin in silent prayer to the Father, and instantly we are forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. That cleansing is the important aspect that restores our ongoing rapport with God. So after a few moments of silent prayer, uh, then I will open in prayer. One other announcement. This afternoon, Jim Powell went to be with the Lord. Jim Powell is the father of Margot Mitchell, whom we all know here. Uh, he's the father of Margot. He is survived by his wife, Margaret, uh, the twin da- daughters, Margot and Jan, and Margot's daughter, Andrea, and great-grandson, Hunter, who we have all seen fight his victorious battle with leukemia and uh, here in the, from the time he was in nursery up into, into prep school. So please be in prayer for that family now as, um, as they are, are grieving and making all of the new adjustments to life with Jim now with the Lord in heaven. Great testimony. Moved here from Australia to get solid Bible teaching and was here for a number of years before they decided to relocate up into the Oklahoma area. Had a, he had a, as kind of an odd note of coincidence, small world, he had a furniture store up on Westheimer near up past Kirkwood. One day, I, not knowing anything about them, the family, or anything, because I just moved back to Houston, I walked in there, and Margot waited on me and sold me a desk. Some 10, 15 years later, she was at my home and saw that desk and went, I sold that desk to you. So we had had a nice discussion about scripture and doctrine when I had bought the desk because she had found out I was a pastor and had grown up at Baraka, so we had a lot in common. Anyway, we go way back, so we need to pray for them. Let's bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer.
Our Father, when we know of someone in our congregation or family, congregation family, that has gone to be with you, we rejoice, even though at the time it's bittersweet and we sorrow, we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. And Father, we rejoice at Jim's promotion to heaven that now he's no longer suffering and and a series of heart attacks and strokes that he's had will not be going on for a long time, and he's free from all of those limitations. And, Father, we pray for his family. We pray for his uh, widow, Margaret. We pray for Jan and and uh, Margot. And, Father, as they have decisions to make, we pray that you would guide and direct them. Father, we rejoice that we have the certainty of your word that when we trust in Christ as Savior, that we are saved eternally and that we can never lose that salvation, that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And there is salvation in no other name under heaven and that we cannot add to it with any human works or take away from it. And so, Father, we rejoice because we know that he is with you. Father, now as we study your word and go through the basic basic tenets, the basic elements of biblical Christianity, help us to understand them and get a have a desire to grow beyond these basics to a greater grasp of what Scripture teaches. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're studying Second Peter in our Thursday night Bible class. And we have come to a passage in the second verse that talks about the, our like precious faith. This is similar to a passage, as we'll see, in Jude. And in Jude, it talks about that we are to defend the faith, the faith once for all given to the saints. Both passages indicate that there is a set body of beliefs that are biblical, that are Christian that are our foundation, and beyond that, it is not. If you do not hold to these basic elements, then you are not holding to biblical Christianity. And so there, there are definite things. And when you think about what is covered in, by Peter in both of his epistles and what is covered by Jude in his short epistle, they touch on biblical teaching that many people today would not think is critical or foundational to Christianity. And so some people may question some things that I have covered so far. Uh, Tonight we'll cover a couple of things that aren't as foundational as the others, but they are nevertheless foundational. And so the the other things that we have covered so far are... uh, understood by most biblical Christians, historic Christianity as foundational. Without them, it is not Christianity. It is not biblical Christianity, and in fact, it is uh, heresy. So we have looked at these things. Tonight, we're going to look at three at three things, the angelic conflict, wrapping up what we studied last time on angels and Satan and demons. Then we're going to look briefly at interpretation Now, the reason we don't put interpretation in the same category as everything else is because this was something that was developed and learned over a period of 1,500 years. The early church held to a literal interpretation, but it wasn't consistent, and it wasn't the same. They hadn't refined it yet. It got wiped out by the introduction of allegorical interpretation in the uh, third century, 
And that dominated Christianity until you get to the Protestant Reformation starting in 1517 with Martin Luther, who uh, became the leader of uh, the Lutheran Church, and John Calvin. But it took almost a century for these Reformation thinkers to work out just what they meant by a literal interpretation. And some were more consistent in that than others. And if you are consistent in your literal interpretation, then you will come to understand that God works in different ways in different ages or dispensations. And that did not coalesce as a systemized part of teaching until the 19th century as dispensationalism. So we're just going to review briefly, as I said already, Second Peter 1-2 talks about a like precious faith, a specific set body of beliefs that are part of the faith. Without them, there is no biblical Christianity. Jude uses similar language when he talks about contending earnestly for the faith. Today we live in an era post, um, uh, post-liberalism. Liberalism, Protestant liberalism, came in as a result of the Enlightenment in the 17th and 18th centuries, and it rejected revelation as being objectively given by God to man, redefined it as man's uh, enlightened thinking about things of God. So it became very human. This is not uh, orthodox Christianity. This is not... Uh, correct. It is heretical to deny the divine authorship of Scripture. And uh, we looked at Acts 20, 28 to 31, where Paul says that false teachers would come from outside the church and even from among some of the leaders of the church that he was talking to. And he warns that we are to take heed and to watch. So as part of our my pastoral responsibility, it is to make sure you are well grounded in the truth of Scripture and that you come to understand the uh, icks, acts, and spasms that make up the uh, popular heresies of the day. Because we, like those in Peter's time, face these false teachers. Now, in his day, they were, he talks about them as yet future. But by the time Jude wrote, they were already on the scene, and they are still on the scene. So we ask the question, what is this body of truth which we believe? What is the essential of biblical Christianity? We started with the foundation that it must be God. God is always the starting point. The starting point is not Scripture, for Scripture is God-breathed. And so we start with God and then we can understand that his integrity, his righteousness and justice guarantees that what Scripture says is absolutely correct. We looked at God under four categories, the Creator God, the Holy God, the Redeeming God, and the Forgiving God, and that this, these characterize God throughout his work in the Old Testament and are come to fruition through the prophecies and promises in the Incarnation of Christ. Then we come to the authority of Scripture as laid out in passages like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which I've already quoted, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It originates from God. But then Peter talks about the fact that the 
uh, holy men of God in the Old Testament were moved by God the Holy Spirit. We saw last time the Holy Spirit is the agent of revelation. And so here in Peter's epistle, part of what he considers to be that body of truth has to do with the revelation of Scripture, the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture. And as part of our understanding of all of this, we focused on the fact that God is a redeeming God and forgiving God, and that this is based on the work of Christ on the cross, and the only basis for salvation is belief in him. Over 95 times in the Gospel of John, John says, believe. He doesn't say believe and be baptized. He doesn't say believe and join a church. He doesn't say believe and be moral. He doesn't say believe and clean up the sin in your life. He doesn't say believe and repent. And so two passages that focus our attention on this are in John 3. John 3.18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Three times he says believe, and it's never qualified by something else. John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Then we looked at the third topic, who is Jesus, that he is the uh, he is undiminished deity who entered into human history and took on the true humanity of Jesus of Nazareth. Then from there we looked at uh, the question of who is the Holy Spirit last time and the ministries of God the Holy Spirit in this church age, the primary one being walking by the Spirit. That is so important for us and understanding the importance of confession to recover our walk by the Spirit when we sin. Then we looked at the invisible realm of angels, Satan, and demons. And tonight we are going to get into this next, these next two or three questions. How we should interpret the Bible. Let me see here on this slide. Get everything on here. These are the questions tonight in blue. How we should interpret the Bible. God's plan for the ages, and God's plan for the future. So we have a lot to cover. We saw last time what the Bible teaches about angels and Satan. As I brought that to a conclusion, the sixth point I talked about was that there's this individual identified in the Hebrew by the name Halel ben Shahar. That's the uh, bright star, the sun of the morning, literally, and it got translated into Latin as Lucifer, but that uh, Lucifer is not actually in the original. It is Halel ben Shahar, and he is identified in Ezekiel 28, 11 to 19 as the highest of all of the angels. He sinned through his arrogance wanting to be like God, wanting to be the one who received the worship that God received, and so he fell into sin. We know from Scripture, which we'll look at in a minute, that a third of the angels followed him in his rebellion, so that according to 1 Timothy 5.21, there are those who are called his elect or holy angels. I prefer to translate it as choice angels. They are choice because they followed God and did not succumb to the temptation to rebel from Satan. 
and they are called holy angels in Mark 8.38. They are also described, those who rebelled are described as fallen angels. There are some that are active. These are also known as demons. Uh, they are others who are imprisoned. In Second Peter 2.4 describes these as those angels who sinned at the time of Noah. So understanding this whole event described in Genesis chapter 6 as the sons of God, a term in the Old Testament for angels, uh, came and saw the daughters of men, and somehow, we don't know how, the scripture doesn't go into detail, they took on, uh, they were able to uh, transform their bodies into human physical bodies with physical capabilities. We see this in other passages. They can eat, they can drink, they sleep. Um, so they took on these human functions and they could procreate and this was an attack on the genetic purity of the human race in order to prevent God from sending a savior who would be true humanity. If true humanity has been corrupted into a hybrid of, uh, of demon and human, then it would be impossible to save them. So God destroyed all of the human race except for the family of Noah and we're also told that these fallen angels have already been tried and they've been sentenced to the lake of fire in Matthew 25:41. The danger is that they are very much involved in the world today is how Lindsay captured it in the title to his second book, uh, Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth. And so I always thought that was a great title. And he masquerades as an angel of light, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 11.13. False apostles are deceitful workers. They're like false teachers of Peter in 2 Peter 2. And they transform themselves into apostles of Christ. They don't walk around hanging a sign around their neck saying, I'm a false teacher. You can turn on certain channels on the television, and about 80% of the people on there are false teachers. You may not understand why, but they are. And they have a lot of false teaching. And they are, I believe, the devil's disciples. 2 Corinthians 11.14 tells us that Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. He doesn't go around looking like the evil monster in The Exorcist or some of these other films. He looks like a wonderful person, the kind of person that you would uh, want to have over for dinner, the kind of person you would want to socialize with. He looks like a wonderful, intelligent, well-bred Uh, positive, moral individual. And so he deceives people that way, and so do his ministers in verse 15. These are the demons. And so there are many, many uh, people who put on this facade of morality and religiosity that are not teaching biblical truth, but they deceive people. So they transform themselves into ministers of righteousness but their end will be according to their works. And Second Peter 2.4 reminds us that if God did not spare the angels who sinned, that's talking about those in Genesis 6, but cast them down to Hades, actually not hell, Hades in the original, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. So there will be judgment on them. Now that brings us to an important study. 
Uh, just an overview. This is very, very, very basic. What the Bible teaches about the angelic conflict, that is, this conflict between Satan and his angels fighting against God and the holy angels, and that this is a cosmic conflict. This is a conflict that has raged since before the creation of man and will continue until God ends it. Uh, In stage one, he ends it at the battle of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation, and it is at that time he defeats the Antichrist who will be indwelt and empowered by Satan and the false prophet. They will be cast directly into the lake of fire. That Everybody always says, well, what happened just in their mortal body? Well, you know, if you say, if you are watching a baseball game and you comment that, uh, that for example, um, uh, Springer runs to third base, do you think he hit first and second base on the way? Of course he did. So when God says that he's going to cast the Antichrist and false prophet into the lake of fire, that doesn't mean that there aren't intermediate stages such as their uh, trial and the exchange of their mortal corruptible flesh for immortal incorruptible flesh so that they can uh, feel all of the pain and torments for eternity in the lake of fire. At the end of the tribulation, after the battle of Armageddon, Satan will be confined to the abyss He will be chained for a thousand years, and then he will be released for a short time at the end of the 1,000-year millennial kingdom. So all of human history is sandwiched between the fall of Satan and the rebellion of Satan and his angels against God and the ultimate uh, defeat of Satan and his angels by the end of the millennial kingdom. So all of human history is integral to understanding how God is resolving or working out the issues that are raised in the angelic conflict. So let's just run through a little narrative of what is going on here to give you the overview. This angelic conflict began with Satan's rebellion in eternity past when he led a third of the angels against God. They are called Satan's angels in Matthew twenty-five forty-one, as well as in Revelation chapter 12, verses 4 and 9. Let's look at those two verses. We're told, this is John looking forward to a future time after the, or approximately at the midpoint, the three-and-a-half-year midpoint of the tribulation, which lasts for seven years, And we're told his tail, it's already identified this as Satan, the dragon. Uh, His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven. Angels are often identified with stars. So he, he takes a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. So I take this literally that at this time Satan and the angels are now thrown out of heaven, thrown to the earth, and they will become visible and visibly active during that last half of the tribulation. Then when we look at verse 9, we read, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, that goes back to his function with the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, called the devil, which means the accuser and, and Satan, the adversary who deceives the whole world. 
he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now, we know that when they initially rebelled against God, that God uh, necessarily convened a trial, and he uh, determined what their, the verdict would be for them and what the punishment would be. And in Matthew twenty five forty one, we are told that he will also say to those on the left, left hand, this is a judgment that occurs at the end of the tribulation, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared, that's a perfect tense verb in the Greek. That means it was prepared at some time way in the past and is still in existence. Prepared for the devil and his angels. Well, if the lake of fire was prepared for the devil and his angels, then why aren't they there? That's a good question to ask. And the only thing that we can assume is the answer is that they their punishment was postponed for some reason. And during the time of the postponement between the determination of their destiny, their judgment, their punishment, and the time that they actually go into the lake of fire is when we have all of human history. So we infer from that that human history has something to do with that rebellion. Now, there have been a number of ways in which people have expressed what they think the issue was, perhaps an objection. There are numerous places in Scripture that talk about uh, the events in heaven with legal terminology. For example, words like forgiveness are terms that are used in a courtroom. Words like confession. We go to court, a judge calls upon the um, defendant to declare himself guilty or not guilty. If he's declaring himself guilty, he is, of course, admitting guilt. He's confessing his crime. Terms such as justification, redemption, propitiation, these are all terms that derive from a courtroom background, a legal background. So there are many, many other uh, terms that are used in the Scripture that have to do with a legal setting and a courtroom setting. So from this, it has been inferred by numerous uh, theologians over a number of centuries that there must have been a trial in heaven for God has passed a verdict. And that verdict is that they're guilty and they're sentenced to the lake of fire. But Satan has objected. And his objection, some have said, it was how can a just and righteous God and a loving God send his creatures to the lake of fire? I think that's generally on target. I've expanded it a little bit because Satan would probably come along with something such as the punishment ought to fit the crime. This punishment is eternity in the lake of fire. How can an eternal punishment fit the crime of this rebellion against God? And I believe that what God is demonstrating in human history is the heinousness of sin, the malignancy of sin, the horrors of sin. When we think about the world wars that have occurred just in the 20th century and the horrible things that were done on the battlefield and the, the misery and the horror, the, the men who were maimed for life in horrible ways uh, due to the uh, 
uh, weapons of modern warfare. We go back even a century before and we study the kind of torture and uh, brutality that existed in the wars between many different peoples. I've recently read a book called uh, From in the Heart of Everything That Is, which is the story of Red Cloud, an American legend. He was a Sioux war chief. And it describes in uh, detail the kind of torture and maiming that was brought on these American settlers by these by by the American Indians. I've read many other accounts uh, the French, during the French and Indian Wars, things of that nature, that the American Indians were uh, brutal beyond anything that Western European settlers could imagine, and that they their religion was extremely demonic, and so it was just horrific. And all of these things, and then you have what happens as a result of natural disasters, earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes. You look at famines, you look at disease and the ravages of disease and plagues and, and epidemics throughout the centuries. All of that is the result of Adam disobeying God and eating a piece of fruit. What God is demonstrating is that Rebellion against him isn't a small thing. It is horrific, and it changed the nature of the universe. It corrupted every molecule and every atom in the universe, and it has brought untold suffering on billions and billions of people, and this is worthy of an eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. So this is part of what is being uh, being made clear today. So... Adam was created by God as a test case to demonstrate this. He's created perfect, placed in the Garden of Eden, where he is told that he can eat from any fruit in the garden except from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God provided him with a perfect assistant, Eve, to be his wife, and together they were to fulfill the mandates of God to watch over and guard the garden and to rule over the planet. But when Adam sinned, he lost his God-given uh, dominion of the planet because he, as a fallen, corrupt human being, could no longer truly exercise in a righteous way dominion of the planet, even though uh, he would pursue, still pursue that. And the authority and dominion over the planet was given to Satan, who was the prince and the power of the air and the god of this age, and he rules over the kingdoms in his third temptation when he tempted uh, Jesus to give it all up and he would make him the ruler over the kingdoms of the world. Jesus did not challenge his, his offer. He didn't say, no, you can't do that, Satan. You don't, have, you don't own these kingdoms. Jesus recognized that Satan, after Adam's fall, had usurped the authority, the dominion over the planet. So all of what God is doing is to redeem mankind who had become corrupted by sin, redeem the planet, Romans chapter 8, the, uh, the creation is groaning now waiting for uh, redemption, and that ultimately God will recreate the universe in a new heavens and a new earth to do away with this sin-scarred uh, universe. This is the progress of human history, God demonstrating in each era, each dispensation, 
that only radical 100% dependence upon God will allow the human race to realize its real potential and to have any measure of joy and happiness. The strategic defeat of Satan occurred at the cross where Jesus Christ fulfilled his mission to pay the penalty for sin. Satan was defeated strategically there, but he still fights a rear guard action to try to see if he can't do something to uh, foil God's ultimate plan for him, which is eternity in the lake of fire. His primary mission today is to prevent God from fulfilling his promises to either church-age believers or ultimately fulfill his promises to Abraham, promises to make of Abraham a great nation, to have the, his descendants, the Jewish people, fully occupy the land that God gave them, and to have a glorious kingdom on this earth with its center in Jerusalem. This is why anti-Semitism is Satan's ploy to destroy the Jewish people. If he can destroy the Jewish people before God fulfills his promise to them to establish a uh, Jewish kingdom under the rule of the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, then Satan thinks he will win. But that is why prophecy is so important, because it shows that Satan doesn't win, that there will be a horrible time of battle in the future between the forces of God and the forces of Satan. But ultimately, the Jewish people will survive. They will be established in their kingdom. All of the covenants of the Old Testament, the Abrahamic covenant, the new, the uh, land covenant, the Davidic covenant and the new covenant will come to fulfillment when Jesus Christ defeats Satan and his armies at the battle of Armageddon and then establish his kingdom on the earth. So that is the uh, defeat of, of Satan. Now that takes us then to the next section that we have to talk about, which is not there. Let's see here. That is, what does the Bible teach about how we interpret the Bible? The battlefield today, if you're not aware of it, is over interpretation. It has been for many number, many centuries now. What does the Bible mean? And up until the Reformation period, most Christians, whether you were Roman Catholic or not, basically agreed that the Bible was the authority. What they disagreed over was how you interpreted the Bible, how you determined what it meant. In the early church, in the time of the apostles in the first century, it is clear from the way they use the Old Testament, you have to understand they use it in uh, three or four different ways, it is primarily a literal interpretation of the Old Testament. Testament, And as we study the Old Testament, we will see exactly how, how that works, how, that, uh, how the Bible interprets the Bible. But there are ways in which the Bible, for example, the New Testament, will apply Old Testament passages, and this is simply drawing implications or inferences. It's not, for example, saying what the original meaning was. So let's just talk a little bit about what it means to interpret the Bible. The technical term for this is called hermeneutics. How do you understand what the Bible means? 
Now, we believe in a historical, grammatical, literal, contextual interpretation of the scriptures. I have recently added contextual to that because it's very, uh, very important. That has come out of a lot of discussions that a number of us pastors and theologians have had uh, in relation to developments in biblical studies recently. So we believe in a historical, grammatical, literal, contextual interpretation of Scripture. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, historical means that we believe the Bible must be interpreted in light of the times in which it was written. That doesn't mean that we can... Some people use that, this principle and say, well, you know, they believed in myth, and so that's myth. That's not what we mean by this. What we mean is that we have to understand what certain words meant at the time they were used by the writer in that historical context. For example, Moses uses some words a certain way in 1400 B.C., and sometimes language morphs a little bit, usage changes a little bit, and so when somebody writes a thousand years later, they might use the same word with a slightly different meaning. So we have to interpret the Bible in light of the time in which it was written. And we have to understand the historical context. We have to understand the, the forms that were used, such as uh, royal grant treaties and suzerainty vassal treaties that were popular in the uh, 15th century B.C., and so we interpret the scripture in light of the time. So we have to have an appreciation for history and understand how that impacts uh, what was said. We have to interpret uh, David writing at his time. We have to understand that when we read in the Psalms that those are talking about events that occurred in David's life at that time and interpret it in, in light of that. Second, we believe that the Bible records actual historical people, places, and events. There was a literal Adam who was created directly by God. There was a literal Eve who was taken from the side of Adam to show that the human race has a single head, Adam, and that all of us derive from him. There was a literal Methuselah and many other of the uh, of the those listed in Genesis 5 before the Noahic flood who lived around 800 to 960 years. Those are, numbers are to be taken and understood literally. They were, it all makes perfect sense. People say, well, how did that happen? Well, I don't know, but I do know that when you look at the length of time that people lived after the flood, that if you graph it out, and you see that there's a gradual decay, it fits a perfect exponential decay pattern. It is scientific. Now, Moses wasn't sitting up there with his iMac trying to figure out just exactly what the uh, numbers should be to chart this out. It is evidence that those were actual literal numbers, and uh, Moses was recording history. Noah was a literal figure. The worldwide flood was a literal historical event. Abraham and Sarah were not idealized progenitors of, of the Jewish race. They were literal people. What happened to them was literal and actual. Isaac and Rebekah, Isaac was the promised son. 
Rebekah his wife, Jacob and Leah and Rachel, his two wives, all were literal, and their sons were the 12 sons who were the progenitors of the uh, 12 tribes of Israel. The places that are mentioned are literal places. That's one reason I like to take tour groups to Israel, to Egypt, to Greece, so that we can see that these were actual historical places. People lived there, come to understand those cultures, those backgrounds, so that the Word of God opens up to you in a fresh way. That's what historical means. Second, we believe in grammatical. That means all sentences, all phrases, all clauses are set within a uh, syntax, that word means the arrangement of words and phrases according to grammar to communicate meaning. And so we must break down, in many cases, depending on the literature, we must break down these clauses and phrases in terms of their grammar because grammar brings out the thought form of the original writer. And what we're trying to do is to get into the head of the original writer. Now in scripture there are two original writers. There's the human author and the divine author. So grammatical means that we uh, that the language of the Bible must be understood on the basis of its grammar and syntax within the framework of its immediate as well as overall context. We'll come back and talk to context in a minute. There are many different ways to, under, to, to look at Scripture because Scripture comes in different literary genre or forms. You have legal literature such as Exodus and Leviticus. You have historical stories or narrative, Genesis, First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel. You have poetry. Even in those books, there's a certain amount of poetry, not like you have in the, in the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, have a lot of poetry there. Psalms is almost all poetry. Almost all of Job is poetry, except for the first uh, couple of chapters. And then you have prophecy, which is often written in poetry. So how you interpret poetry is slightly different from the way you interpret lit, uh, legal literature. If you were to pick up a commentary, for example, John Eidsmo's commentary on the Constitution and the history of the Constitution, and you read that legal literature, you will interpret it differently than you would a book on Shakespeare's sonnets. Both would be interpreted literally on a historical grammatical basis. I had a wonderful English teacher, first one who made sense to me, taught a course on uh, the British Romantics in the early 18th century, and she used a historical grammatical uh, interpretation of their poetry, and all of a sudden it made actual sense. He, she would talk about, well, this was what was going on in Wordsworth's life when he was writing this, this is where he was living, this is a person he's talking about, and all of a sudden it made perfect sense. But uh, so many people today just interpret on the basis of what it means to me, not what it meant to the original uh, writer. So we have to understand the language and the structure of the language in terms of grammar. And literal means that language is taken at its ordinary face value. This means that idioms and figures of speech must be understood in their everyday sense. The more I am around people who, for whom English is a second language, and you know that I 
uh, do work in uh, Ukraine and Kiev with Russian speakers, Ukrainian speakers, and you realize how idiomatic it is. You stand up in front of a bunch of uh, Russian students and you throw out certain phrases and then you look at the translator and they're looking at you like you've lost your mind. You realize that you've used an idiom that the translator is not familiar with. Then you have to break it down for them. But idioms have specific meanings. Figures of speech have specific meanings. So we have to study those and come to understand those. Basic golden rule of interpretation is when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Don't try to find some hidden meaning. Don't try to find a... Uh, an allegory there. Don't try to build some sort of imaginary meaning. Just take it at its literal face value. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning unless the facts of the immediate context studied in light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicate clearly otherwise. Some years ago, I was involved in an email exchange with an individual who thought he knew a lot about Scripture, and he was a very successful individual, so he thought that because he was successful in business, that automatically transferred to success in Bible study, and he was trying to convince me that that uh, Isaiah 14, which talks about the fall of Satan, was a metaphor. But the, see, the thing is, you have to look at passages. They give you clues. The language, the literature gives you a clue. You know when something is metaphorical and when it is not. It is not something you just read into a passage. And so, But that, unfortunately, is an example of the influence of modern interpretation. So when we interpret Scripture, we want to ask, first of all, what does the text say? In Bible study methods, we talk about this as observation. What does it say? What, what do the words mean? What, what, how are these words used in other contexts? What are the details? Who's talking? Who are they talking about? To whom are they speaking? What does the text say? Uh, second, what did the original author intend to communicate to his intended audience, to his original audience? What did John who, when he wrote the Gospel of John, want to communicate to his late first century readers. Don't go to the text and say, well, what does this mean to me? You've skipped about five steps. Start off by saying, what does this mean? What did, did John intend to communicate to his readers? That tells us the original meaning of the text. We have to start with that before we can go anywhere else. And then we believe in the contextual interpretation of Scripture. Contextual means that first we relate the passage to its immediate context. So if you're looking at, for example, a particular verse, that verse may be part of a sentence. For example, if you're in Ephesians 1.10 then you must realize that Ephesians 1.10 is part of a sentence that began in 1.3 and ends in 1.14. That's a very long sentence. 
So you have to understand that within the context of the surrounding passages from about Ephesians 1.7 down to 1.11, and that's part of the overall statement from 1.13 down to 1.14. That is dealing with context. Then you have to relate it to the broader context of Paul's writings, comparing and contrasting it to the sister letter to Ephesians, which is Colossians, and see what that helps you with, and then you have to compare it to other Pauline literature and how the language is used in other uh, of Paul's epistles, and then you connect that to other New Testament epistles, and then to the New Testament, and then to the Bible as a whole. It's not something that just happens automatically. So that's what it means to have a contextual interpretation. Now, all of that involves literal interpretation, which is in contrast to allegorical interpretation. Allegory says that there is something beyond the literal meaning. Sometimes it says, well, the literal meaning, there is a genuine literal meaning that may be true, but it's not important. You have to read between the lines. You have to come up with the spiritual meaning. Uh, That goes back to the early part of the church age when a man named Origen introduced this as a much more esoteric form of interpretation. And he minimized the significance of the literal for the spiritual, and often his, more often than not, his spiritual interpretation had nothing whatsoever to do with the literal meaning of the words. So you developed a system that where Israel did not refer to literal, biological Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and recipients of the Abrahamic uh, covenant and the Mosaic covenant and the real estate covenant and the Davidic covenant and new covenant. But Israel was really the church in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, the church is spiritual Israel. And so no longer does literal Israel have a role or place, and so the existence of modern Israel or the existence of the Jewish people becomes irrelevant, and that became historically the seedbed out of which Christian anti-Semitism grew, the poison fruit that has destroyed the relations between the Jewish people and Christians. Whereas in a literal interpretation, Israel always means ethnic, historic, national Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The church did not begin until the day of Pentecost in A.D. uh, 33, and it will end with the rapture of the church at the end of this dispensation. One of my favorite quotes on interpretation comes from Justice Clarence Thomas talking about interpretation of the law, but whether you're talking about interpreting an email you received yesterday, a love note you received in a high school classroom, the instructions from the IRS as to how to fill out your tax code, we always interpret everything literally. Justice Thomas said, let me put it this way, There are really only two ways to interpret the Constitution. Just change that to the Bible and you've got it. There's only two ways to interpret the Bible as well. Try to discern as best we can what the framers intended or make it up. That's Bible study. Try to determine what the original authors intended, God plus the human author, or else you're just making it up. And too many people have been deceived by false teachers who just make it up. 
Okay, we'll skip the rest of that quote. Let's give a biblical example. When God created in six days, this means six literal 24-hour consecutive days. However, there are people who say that these days are not real days, they're not 24 hours, they're extended time periods, or this is a literary framework, or any number of alternatives. However, the way the Bible uses this is in part of a command in the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Shabbat, the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. Now, if those are not, that is clearly referring to what God did in Genesis 1, 1 through 4. He created in six days, and there was morning and there was evening day one, and there was morning and there was evening day two. I don't know how you could be more precise than that, but some people say, well, that's not precise at all. It really means there was a thousand years of darkness and then a thousand years of light or different geological ages, whatever. But God says, I worked six literal 24-hour days, and I rested on the seventh, and you do the same thing. If they aren't literal 24-hour consecutive days, then somebody could say, well, okay, I'm going to work for 6,000 years. I don't have to take a day off. I can just work and build my business and make millions and billions of dollars, and I don't have to rest till the 7,000th year. There are people who would love that. But that's not what it says. It says work six days. So what God meant was six literal 24-hour days. Otherwise, this commandment becomes absolutely meaningless nonsense. So verse 11, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the seas, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. If that's not literal, if Genesis 1 is not literal, then that's not literal. And you can just make it mean whatever you want to. And then the last thing on this is that revelation is progressive. Later revelation is built on earlier revelation. Abraham knew more than Noah. Noah knew more than Adam, probably. Uh, you go later on to Isaiah. Isaiah knew more than Moses or uh, David. So it is progressive when you get into the New Testament The fulfillment of Old Testament promises and prophecies is clear in the person of Christ, so the disciples clearly knew more than Old Testament writers did. So Revelation is progressive. This leads to the next topic. I actually thought that we would get there tonight. I was hoping to, but we're not going to get there. I'm not going to try to cover the next two areas tonight, so we'll have to come back And we will be able to wrap that up next week, is understanding God's plan for the ages and God's plan for the future. It's important to recognize that is built on a literal interpretation of Scripture. Without that, we will be just absolutely at a loss to understand God's plan for the ages or God's plan for the future. So we'll come back, finish this up, next Thursday night. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these things this evening, to study out what you have revealed in your word to help us build a framework, a foundation for interpreting your scripture, understanding our salvation, understanding our spiritual life, understanding that Jesus died for our sins, that we have everlasting life because of what he did 
when we trust in him, when we believe on him, believe only in him with nothing added, then we have everlasting life that can never be taken from us. Father, we thank you so much for our salvation and for your word. Pray that you'd guide and direct us continuously as we study your word and apply it to our lives. In Christ's name, amen.